Human beings are hardwired to notice color, and of the seven million shades our eyes perceive, we pick favorites early on. What's your favorite color is so common a question we often answer reflexively without having to think, just like my coworkers did when I recently took an informal poll. My favorite color is green. Anything bright. So like a turquoise would be beautiful. My favorite color is red. Why? Uh, It's always just been my favorite color since I was a kid. I don't really have an explanation for it. I like it. (laughs) I love blues, especially like a rich, deep, royal blue. And is that your favorite color in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you're a knitter, a quilter, a maker, you understand the siren song of color. Actually, scratch that. You don't need to be a crafter at all. From that first box of crayons that you picked up as a child, to paint swatches and fashion magazines and almost any kind of store display, color calls to all of us. But occasionally, across the course of human history, that irresistible siren song of color has dragged us toward the rocks with deadly consequences. So in today's episode of Fiber Nation, we're putting Roy G. Biv on trial, taking a sort of but not really scientific, extremely anecdotal look at a few notable dyes on the color wheel, trying to settle the question, in the world of dyes, which color is the deadliest? How far will humans go just to wear their favorite color? And not all is doom and gloom. We'll also find out how some dyes have saved lives too. You're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. Oh, yep. Can you hear me? Is the call all right? Okay. All right, I think we have this working. Lovely. Um, to solve this episode's mystery, we needed a color expert. My name is Cassia Sinclair, and I'm a writer, the author of The Golden Thread and The Secret Lives of Color. Cassia spoke with me from her home in London. Her book, The Secret Lives of Color, is a collection of breezy and entertaining essays about 75 different dyes and paints, spanning recorded history. You can find more info about her book in our show notes, and I highly recommend it. You know, we, as modern um, people, we have access to this huge, and I really do mean huge, array of colors. You know, I'm um, as guilty as anyone. I wake up and um, spend probably 10 minutes scrolling through Instagram. And just in those in those 10 minutes, I'll be exposed to millions of different um, colors. And that's a joy and a privilege that people who lived in medieval Europe simply wouldn't have had. Though dyed cloth goes back well over 10,000 years, most fabric and clothing would have been natural, not exactly exciting hues. You'd have wool in sheepy shades such as cream and black, straw-colored linen, off-white cotton, you get the idea. The earliest dyes were colored earth like hematite and ochre, and they would have been extremely undramatic and prone to fading. Joseph's coat of many colors was most likely something with brown and reddish stripes, not at all the amazing technicolor dream coat of legend. And so we wanted more, brighter, stronger, flamboyant color. And that desire to stand out would lead us down a dark and desperate path. Strangely enough, though, the first step on that path is not a dye at all. It's a perfect, gorgeous pigment called lead white. 
The recipe goes back over 4,000 years and can be found around the globe. Soak strips of lead in vinegar, and the chemical reaction creates a puffy layer of lead carbonate, which is used in everything from paint to ceramics to cosmetics. Cassia explains why lead white is found in so many parts of the world. Uh, so uh, lead white um, crops up again and again in lots of different historical contexts and does have this really um, wide geographical range. In part, this is just because there's quite a lot of lead about on the Earth's surface. And its popularity was not just for its perfect colour. What's so what's so interesting about lead white is that the texture, the texture seems to have just really beguiled people into using it. So when you talk to artists who do still kind of seek out lead white pigments and like to use them today, they talk about how buttery it is as a pigment. This buttery texture made lead white into the earliest turbocharged skin cream, giving the wearer this perfectly smooth and pale complexion. You find uses of it um, in Japan, for example, but also a lot of uses of it in medieval Europe, where having um, very pale skin was seen as something that um, seems being very high status. Um, and for people who were in the upper echelons of society, um, they would use lead-based cosmetics um, to whiten their skin. And I think that um, it's not just the colour, but it's the texture you have to bear in mind as well that made this so special. Special, but deadly. If making it didn't kill you outright, using it certainly took a toll. It's extremely um, poisonous and really not very good for your health or your skin at all. And so you you would have had this phenomenon where the more you applied it, you know, the less good you would have looked without it, and which would, of course, have led you to use more. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a, you know, this was a real problem, and, and particularly for people who were very, very, very image conscious. And there you have it, a universal human truth. If we like something, if we find something alluring and attractive, like fried foods or bad boyfriends, even though we know it's bad for us, we can't stay away. We knew this stuff was dangerous from ancient Greece on, but we still used it as a cosmetic well into the 18th century. So how does the story of lead white lead us to textiles and dyes? Vanity, pure and simple. If people throughout history wore toxic face paint just because they thought it made them look good, or at least upper class, they also use clothing and the colors used to dye it for exactly the same reason. Something that I noticed is that um, people paid a lot of attention to what they were wearing, and that went for the textiles, and it also went for the colors and the palette that they were putting together in these incredible outfits that were, you know, really only going to be worn once for one night. Putting together, but at what cost? Color has a hierarchy. Historically, most of what we think of as natural colors, at least the ones that are easy to make, are, as I said, kind of meh. Plants like madder and marigold and heather make dull reds and dull golds and dull yellows. You can see where I'm going. Bright, strong, saturated colors like crimson, purple, deep blues, and greens. Most of the time, these took a lot more effort, were a lot more expensive, and often came at a hefty price in one way or another. If we look at the color wheel of history, purple dye is certainly at the top when it comes to status. It's the color of royalty and Roman emperors, and this is all due to one particular dye called Tyrian purple. Yes, uh, so 
Cerulean purple is one of the best examples, I think, of colour and power and, and the relationship between the two. And that association goes all the way back um, to ancient Rome and ancient Egypt um, because of this particular dye um, that was being um, created uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean many, um, many, many centuries ago. Um, it's made from two species of mollusk that are native to the Mediterranean. These shellfish have a tiny gland. Squish an unsuspecting mollusk and you'll get a few drops of something that smells like fishy garlic. And if you wipe off that goo with your sleeve, say... Then you'd see an incredible transformation take place as the dye interacts with the light um, and the the dye turns from clear to yellow um, and then to green um, and then to blue and then finally kind of stops at, at around the purple mark. In a world where most clothing was cream, tan, brown, who wouldn't covet that dye? But getting this purple took a lot of work. Awful lot of, of um, sea snails died to make this 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 colorant. It took around two hundred and fifty thousand um, mollusks to make a single ounce of dye. And you needed some sort of fixative to keep that purple from fading. The most common was ammonia, otherwise known as urine. Mollusk mush and stale pea were allowed to ferment in giant vats that had to be kept well downwind from towns. But this noxious brew created a dye so precious, it was eventually, literally, worth its weight in gold. Because it was such a potent symbol of power, you know, emperors didn't want people of no social status or lower social status usurping this very powerful symbol. So they would restrict its use by law. Sumptuary laws dictate who can wear what, and usually they're meant to keep the pauper from dressing like the prince. Silk, velvet, gems and pearls, pointy shoes, and certain colors. All these and more were reserved for upper classes of society, depending on the era. In ancient Rome, sumptuary laws limited the wearing of Tyrian purple to generals, politicians, and the imperial family. And only emperors could wear solid purple. Lesser consuls and senators, they had to content themselves with just a stripe on their toga. And while lesser folk might covet the color and even be able to afford it in some cases, wearing it became punishable by death. And although this precious purple dye was not toxic itself, it did require the deaths of millions of shellfish to the point of near extinction. It was, in more ways than one, a color to die for. If we're treating this episode as a color wheel, red comes next. And red and purple dyes have so much in common, both good and bad. The earliest red dyes, maybe the first dyes, period, were likely from hematite, a reddish-orange earth. Hematite makes muddy reddish-browns and oranges, and the dyeing process is literally as harmless as playing in the mud. The roots of a perennial climbing plant called matter also makes a red, ranging from pale rose to a dull maroon, but it's not particularly strong or bright or long-lasting. To get a fire engine red, a lipstick red, or cherry red, you needed something different and deadly. But like purple, that threat was not to the wearer but to the millions and millions of tiny-scale insects needed to make the color. Lackbugs in Asia, Kermes in Europe, and cochineal in the Americas. 
all produce a bright, beautiful red when squished. If you were able to find some of these very tiny insects and squeeze them, you'd get a very bright red liquid being extruded from the bodies of these insects. And this, it turned out, was a really fabulous dye and was very expensive and was therefore um, used by and bought by people who were... um, who wanted to show their high status in their clothing. The scarlet produced by Kermes insects is the red worn by cardinals and popes. Cochineal is why the British redcoats were not the British rustcoats. And long before that, cochineal was worn by Aztec and Inca royalty. Growing and harvesting cochineal was an entire industry throughout South and Central Americas. The Aztec ruler Montezuma demanded an annual tribute of cochineal from the cities he conquered. And at times, the dye's value was on par with silver. In the Americas, those scale insects, their principal food is a type of cactus. Um, And so to ensure that they could grow these scale insects as a crop, the Aztecs were using brushes made out of fox fur to brush the eggs of these insects onto new cactus leaves to ensure um, the insects would multiply and they'd be able to get more of this red dye. It takes 70,000 dried bugs to make one pound of cochineal dye, an insect apocalypse. As a sidebar, lac, kermes, and cochineal are still used today and in much more than cloth. Food items ranging from strawberry yogurt to Snapple to sausages and jelly beans have all used this rosy red color. If your makeup or snack contains something called carmine or red lake, be warned, it's not vegan. Next along the color wheel, we have orange and yellow. Artist orange and yellow paints and pigments are chock full of nasty stuff, from cadmium to mercury to radioactive particles. But when it comes to dyeing cloth, there's not a lot happening here. Let's face it, most of us have made yellow or gold dye in first grade, using onion skins to dye eggs or whatever. If it's a color you can trust a toddler with, it doesn't belong in this podcast episode. So let's skip ahead to green. When I interviewed people in my office, green was by far the most popular color. What's your favorite color? Green. Hands down. Green. I like dark green. My favorite color is green. My favorite color is green. I love green. Up to this point, all of the colors we've discussed have been more or less natural. You get them from ground-up plants or ground-up bugs or ground-up shellfish. This changed, though, with the Industrial Revolution and the first artificial dyes. Here's Cassia again. Our generation are the inheritance of a huge palette of colours. And the biggest explosion in that palette came in the 19th century when chemists were looking into various um, elements and kind of, you know, essentially messing around and seeing what they could create. And this was for better and for worse. You know, some of those um, pigments we we still use today and, and that we're very happy with. But some, unfortunately, landed on the market with really very little testing. This is particularly true of a color called Shields Green, a deep and rich emerald. In 1775, chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele was studying arsenic. And this wasn't unusual. Chemists of the time often seemed to pick some random toxic substance for study and just go with it. During the course of his experiments, he came across a really um, vibrant green colorant um, that could be used to dye cloth, but could also be used in industrial processes like the manufacture of wallpaper was, was a classic example. It's hard to imagine, but in the 18th century, 
there weren't that many reliable and affordable green pigments available. And so when this chemist, Carl Wilhelm Schiele, found this pigment, it really caused a huge sensation and was a huge commercial success almost immediately. Scheele's green was used to dye wallpaper and dress fabrics and artificial flowers. It was immensely popular and very fashionable. There's this brilliant story of the novelist Charles Dickens, who returned from a trip to Naples, and where he'd seen an awful lot of this green in, in fashionable society. And so he sort of grandly announced to his wife that he was going to redecorate their entire house from attic to, to basement um, entirely in this one colour. Thankfully, his wife voted him down, possibly changing the course of literary history. The paint, wallpaper, and fabrics that Dickens so loved were literally steeped in arsenic and released it when exposed to water vapor. England's damp climate would have turned the Dickens residence into an emerald-hued death bomb. And a quick aside, a well-known anecdote about Napoleon attributes his death to the bright green wallpaper in his bedroom for the same reason. Unlike Dickens, women who wore dresses dyed in Shields green weren't as lucky, especially if they were unladylike enough to perspire. Some dress fabric was found to contain almost four grams of arsenic per yard. There are accounts of poison bed curtains and gruesome deaths of women working in factories that made artificial flowers or other green items. Though Shields green ceased production by the late 1800s, it was used as an insecticide into the 1930s. And... Although today we associate green with kale and smoothies and healthy things, we still use the color green to symbolize poison, from cartoons to health and safety posters. Could Shields green be why? With all those stories of poison dresses and killer wallpaper, it's hard to imagine a dye that's done more damage. But is it the deadliest? I had a conversation with my boss when I first started working on this episode. So when you think of the entire spectrum... Of the rainbow? Uh-huh. What do you think is the deadliest color? I would think red, because I just think blood. Like, I, I, that's what comes to mind for me. Believe it or not, it's green. No! How? That's crazy! <laughs> <laughs> but it's so pretty! You're going to have to listen to the podcast to find out. Arr! At the time of that conversation, I was certain that Shields Green won the deadliest dye contest, hands down. But after learning a little more about cochineal red, I'm not so sure. Why the arsenic-laced green is undeniably a killer, cochineal was also deadly in a more tangential and far more terrible way as well. Spain's desire for silver and gold, along with red cochineal, fired the engines of conquest and colonization in the Americas. The Spanish brought their first shipment of cochineal to Europe in 1526, and it was an instant hit. Over the next decade, the desire for this color and the status it gave helped fuel the annihilation of the Incan Empire. Middle school textbooks always focus on the silver and gold taken by conquistadors, but there were literally tons of dried bugs loaded onto their ships as well. And the Spanish continued to export cochineal from the Americas to Europe for hundreds of years, long after the gold and silver supply dried up. At the peak of the cochineal craze, Spain imported 72 tons of dried insects from Peru in just one year alone. That's over 10 billions of insects and thousands of Incans killed. So when it comes to naming the deadliest dye, I'm declaring a tie. Red killed the insects and, indirectly, the Aztec and Incan people who made it. 
while green killed those who wore it. All right, so we've identified the deadliest dyes, but we still have two more colors we need to talk about. This will bring us full circle on the color wheel, and thankfully let us end this episode on a happy note. Next up, for all you optimists out there, I'm going to introduce you to the two most helpful hues in science and medicine. We'll be right back after the short break. Okay, on to our final two colors, the heroes of this episode. First up, blue. My colleagues may love green, but blue is the most commonly picked favorite color around the world. Ask any yarn store what color they sell the most of, and it's inevitably blue. But reproducing blue is notoriously tricky, whether in frescoes, fabrics, or hair dye. Historically, the chief source of natural blue dye is the indigo plant, and we can trace that dye back to roughly 4000 BC. Making indigo dye is a process so complicated and time-consuming, you wonder how in God's name anyone ever managed to figure it out. Essentially, indigo leaves are harvested, soaked, fermented, beaten, mixed with lime, beaten again, strained, mixed with lye this time, and beaten a final time for good measure. All of this makes a thick blue paste, which is then further fermented. Indigo is kind of the sourdough of dye stuffs. In fact, many traditional indigo dyers talk about their indigo vat as a living, breathing creature. Depending on how long you soak your cloth or dip it in the dye bath, indigo can range from a pale sky blue to teal to the deepest denim color imaginable, almost black. Indigo blue is extremely strong. Those jeans of yours will take many, many washes to fade. And quite often, fabric will hold on to indigo far longer than it might hold on to other colors it's dyed with. As those other colors fade, an interesting phenomenon happens to the cloth. In um, medieval European um, tapestries, for example, you get something called blue sickness, whereby um, if the um, creators of the tapestry have tried to create, say, you know, a, a countryside scene with lots of green greenery, green forests, green leaves, so on and so forth. They'll have probably used two different dyes. They'll have used an indigo, possibly a woad, and they'll have used a, a yellow dye. And the yellow over time will have disappeared. And as it's disappeared, the tapestry has become bluer and bluer simply because of the strength of the, the indigo dye. It's called blue sickness. It's sort of this phenomenon where you get these very blue-tinged landscapes, for example, in tapestries. And I think at this point, it's rather nice to find a color sickness that affects only the fabric, not the wearer. One random note about indigo. If you take that natural dye into a lab, mix it with the chemical sulfuric acid, and then do a few other sciencey things, you get a beautiful blue-green dye called Saxon Blue. And because Saxon blue starts with the natural indigo dye, but is then created in a lab like Shields Green, it's a bridge between the ancient natural colors and more modern artificial dyes. But unlike Shields Green, Saxon blue is not just a lovely color. It has medical use as a stain in diagnostic labs, which means that this color has saved lives. And this brings us back to purple again or a rather specific shade of purple called mauve. 
Carl Scheele was not the only chemist simply messing about with one substance or another to see what happened. Yes, so the story of, of Mauve is, is a really lovely one. Um, it starts off with this 18-year-old boy. Cassia is referring to William Henry Perkin, who in 1856 created the first truly synthetic dye. He was studying at university and he was actually sort of on his holidays and he was working out of his father's attic in the east end of London. And what he was hoping for was to create a synthetic version of quinine out of coal tar, which at that time was absolutely in abundance and was sort of considered a bit of a waste product. In the ever-expanding British Empire, malaria was an enormous problem. Quinine, developed from a South American tree bark, was the only remedy. A synthetic quinine would have made a quick and steady fortune. He is doing a series of experiments, and what he's hoping for is kind of to find a colourless liquid in his beaker, which might have been quinine. But what he discovers instead is a kind of dull purple sludge. And I think another scientist might have just thrown this away in, in disgust and despair. But we're lucky that he was an artist And so he thought that he might kind of experiment further to see if this dull purple sludge might have other uses. So he dipped a piece of cloth into his beaker and found that what he'd created entirely accidentally was what would become the first aniline dye, uh, which would give rise to a whole family of, of dyes later on down the line. These aniline dyes derived from coal tar were the first truly synthetic dyes, and they created a rainbow of possibilities. If you look at a sample of Perkin mauve, you see it's a rich, bright Crayola purple. Here was a rival to Tyrian purple, still produced, but in tiny, devastatingly expensive amounts. Mauve could be produced in a lab in almost limitless supply. And yet, strangely enough, although Henry set up a small factory to produce the new dye, No one was much interested in his purple sludge at first. Until the top influencer of the time, Queen Victoria herself, saw the hue and fell in love. Mauve purple became the new color of royalty in a way, and also the color every fashionable woman now clamored to wear. So Queen Victoria wore a mauve gown to the wedding of one of her daughters. And this was widely reported in the press, not so very different from today. We're all obsessed with what the royalty are wearing. And because she chose to wear it, this colour took off to such an extent that a satirical magazine the following year claimed that the entire world had caught the mauve measles. And this really made William Henry Perkins' fortune. And as a result of this one discovery of this this one dye, a thousand other colours bloomed. You know, within a few years, there were aniline blacks and greens and uh, pinks and reds and and blues. And he had accidentally um, discovered really a new branch of chemistry, all thanks to this one purple dye. Henry Perkins' colourful discovery led not only to a range of new artificial hues. A few years after Queen Victoria's embrace, there were 28 dye factories in England and Europe. One of these factories, BASF, is now the second largest chemical producer today. Another dye company, Bayer, went on to create aspirin and later heroin, which at the time seemed like a really good idea, but that's a different story. The mauve measles may have been infectious from a fashion point of view, but they were not deadly. 
In fact, the science of aniline dyes and the coal tar that made them would lead to a bevy of important medical discoveries, from lab stains used to study bacteria, to so-called miracle drugs, to x-ray plates, to some of the earliest chemotherapy treatments. Coal tar gets a bad rap today. It's a petroleum waste product and is linked to cancer in many studies. But diluted, it's still an effective treatment for psoriasis and other skin conditions. And here's one more interesting but utterly random side note. Though unrelated to Perkins aniline dyes, Prussian blue, that gives blueprints their name, is the only antidote to thallium, along with other toxic or radioactive metals. Oddly enough, it's derived not from indigo, but from cochineal. Go figure. We often dismiss color in terms of fashion and decor as frivolous, something we shouldn't spend too much time worrying about. And as a signifier of wealth and status, or simply because we think we look good in a particular shade, color does indeed appeal to our deepest vanity. But for something so seemingly frivolous, color has immense power. It can change history, toppling some empires while building new ones. A new shade of green can create an entire economy, while a new shade of red can destroy another. Color can urge revolution and call for surrender. As we've heard today, colorful dyes can poison a population, or they can lead to miracle cures down the road. When you look at color, whether it's your clothing, a housewares catalog, or simply your own yarn stash, you're looking, in a small way, at the history of the world. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about today's episode on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please take time to rate us and leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski, and Ron Doyle. Ron edited and mixed this episode, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.